welcome to Side Alpha Leadership, a podcast where leaders can share their experiences and discuss what leadership means to them. I'm your host, David Polikoff. Hi, welcome to this month's episode of Side Alpha Leadership. I'm David Polikoff. Um, today, I have the pleasure of having a good friend of mine and uh, fellow uh, radio uh, program or radio star, for lack of better words, for uh, politics and taxes that we do on fire engineering, uh, Frank Ritchie. Frank, welcome to the show, and uh, go ahead and uh, talk a little bit about yourself. Well, Dave, most people know who I am. Um, what do you call it? I'm a contributing editor to fire engineering. I'm on the advisory board for FDIC. I'm a battalion chief in New Haven, Connecticut. I'm also the union president and I won a United States Supreme Court case and is quite active in politics as well. And uh, not to to mention that uh, both of us just got our chapters published in uh, Billy Goldfeder's new book, uh, which was pretty exciting for me. I know that you've done stuff like that before. That was pretty exciting for me. And I have you to thank for that opportunity. So thank you for that. Oh, no. I Well, what do you call it? It was, a, it was exciting for me, too. I had the opportunity to write for three of his books to be a very small part of a large project that donates money to some great causes. And uh, the book is great because it's it's perfect for those who have attention deficit disorder where – you can't stay focused on one thing because each chapter covers something totally different. So I think it's a great project that Billy put together. Yeah, and, and uh, when people – and I urge you to go out and buy the book because 100% of the proceeds do go to some great charities. Uh, the book itself looks very intimidating because it's so thick, but some of the chapters are only like two or three pages long. So that means that you've got like over 80 contributors uh, adding to this book, and it's really good stuff, and it covers a wide variety of topics from uh, – pulling lines into the front door and lessons learned all the way up to leadership and chief officer stuff. So there's a little bit of something in there for everybody. And if I'm not mistaken, I know that you've got something uh, cooking on the back burner for yourself, uh, something that you're working on as well, correct? Uh, Yeah, I'm trying to write a leadership book right now based off my successes and failures over the last 20 years. I'm looking to retire July 4th of this year. So I figured it'd be a good time to let some of my secrets loose. I think that uh, when you do retire, you need to pack the family up and come down south because it's a little warmer down here. Uh, You do have some family down here. Uh, There's a lot of politics down here as well as uh, uh, we're not getting hit as hard with the coronavirus as you guys are in that tri-state area up there. (laughs) That's 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 for sure. My wife would like it, but I kind of I kind of like the upper northeast. I gotcha. Um, So, again, uh, today we're going to. Transition through a couple of different topics today. The uh, first thing I wanted to talk about it is uh, the thing that every firefighter loves and hates, which is change. Um, they hate the way that things are, and they hate the and they hate change. Um, so what I want to kind of just and that's that's a, a phrase that's been coined a long time ago, but I know you use that phrase quite often. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about change and. As a chief officer or as a leader in an organization, you know, when you think that, you know, hey, this would really benefit the, the leadership, how would do you go about actually um, proposing that change to the rank and file? I know you got to start – I like to start at the bottom and get buy-in from the people down below. But how do you bring that conversation to light to the rank and file about getting them on board with what you think is a good idea? How would you go about doing something like that? Well, one of the first things you got to do is you got to plan any change that you're bringing forward. That I think is one of the 
major faults of the fire service. If it's not on fire, we tend not to know how to handle it properly. So, and that seems in most fire departments around the country is planning is where they really drop the ball. The other thing that I see a lot of chief officers fall into the trap of is they want to institute too much change too quickly. You got to look at the fire department and I'll use a military analogy, kind of like an aircraft carrier. You you really only want to turn it 10 degrees at a time. You don't want to go in and just rewrite the whole book. It's, it's usually the, the quickest way to failure out there. You want change that's planned. What really needs to be changed? What's working? What's not working? And then kind of plan for that change and try to get the goal to change the organization no more than 10% a year. And that's a way to get buy-in as well. The other trap that I always talk about, and Dave, you've been a leader on this, and you can even speak to this, is that chief officers often want to do the cool job they did before they were promoted. So when they were a private or a lieutenant or a captain, they wanted to change X, Y, Z, and they couldn't. So instead of remembering those days when they got promoted, they forget that. And what they want to do is they want to now that they're the chief, now they have all the answers, and now they want to change things. The only thing is the fire service changes just naturally. So you want to empower your captains, your lieutenants, your firefighters to make the change as close to the problem as possible. And that's where you usually get in that key buy-in. If you were, and I'll use the novel debate, if you were a fog nozzle or straight stream firefighter, and now you're chief and you're going to want to mandate that, does it really affect the overall operations, whether it's a smooth bore or a straight stream? It's kind of like the Chevy Ford argument. Right. So let the members make those type of decisions. Empower your officers to make decisions close to the problem. And you got to realize that you're not in that job anymore. you got to be more global. The chief officers that try to micromanage things are the ones that set themselves up for failure right off the bat. Yeah, I uh, I remember the days, you know, being a firefighter, you know, you have a good idea and, and, and you, you want to run with that and you run up against a bunch of barriers and everything. And, and uh, I think actually even uh, I think what kind of jogged my 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 uh, my thoughts about this particular topic was I think it, it kind of coincides with the chapter that you wrote in, in Billy's book where you had talked about, you know, don't don't be that chief that you didn't like when you were a firefighter that wanted to make change that's going to personally affect the way that you do your job as a firefighter. You know, um, I had some success with that with, when we did our, our nozzle and hose line study in, in my county. Um, I know that uh, making large changes can be difficult because, especially when you're fundamentally changing the way that we do business. We, we recently redid our safe structural firefighting policy to a, a – a, to our incident response policy, and we changed the way that we did a few things, and there was a little bit of pushback, but it it took some time. Um, with in New Haven, when I first came out there and, and we did a class on incident command and stuff like that, you had invited us out there. At the time, you guys were using ten codes, and I know that uh, like New Haven and East Haven, they all use ten codes, but they were different ten codes. Now, you've recently, once you got into that position of, of training chief, you changed all that. Is that correct? Well, the, the department changed, but now it's we wish we would go back to some of the codes because some of the plain language just gets a little out of control. And 
I mean, an apartment's using plain language. The plain language should at least be standardized to some extent because you have individuals saying totally different things, referring to the same thing, which also leads to confusion where the codes were crystal clear. Now I know for interoperability, they want to go to plain language. However, we're city. It's very rare that other departments are going to come in and operate with us. And then it's very easy to go to plain language. So, so we'd actually like to, after we made the change as a department, we're looking at, you know, maybe there's a couple things where codes do make sense where it wouldn't have a negative impact on interoperability. And, and that's, uh, we, in the, in the Washington metro area, we all went to the, the plain speak following the NIMS uh, guidelines, but we do a ton of mutual aid, which you know. So we go into various counties. Um, every now and then we'll cross over into uh, Washington, D.C. Um, they use the plain speak as well. Um, but I know like once you get up into some of the bigger cities like New York, even in New Haven, where you guys don't really rely heavily on mutual aid, you guys are just pretty much uh, self-sufficient. So you can kind of get away with the 10 codes, which I believe is why New York probably still uses theirs, correct? I believe so, yeah. And like I said, you don't need all the 10 codes. Some things can be reduced to plain language, but some just for, especially when if it's if it's like a minor fire that has no extension. You're not going to have mutual aid on that. So there's no reason not to have something like that because it's not going to affect your interoperability. So we're looking at things like that. They're looking to update the SOGs now. Um, I think they're, they might be wanting to change a little bit too much too quickly. The other way to get good buy-in is when there's a catalyst for change, not just blanket change. I'm the boss. So now I'm going to change everything, you know, was there an incident? Was there something that happened where it's a good time to make a policy or an SOG change? And I love the way Montgomery County, Maryland does their SOGs where they put them out for review and comment before they enact them. I think that's that's critical. That's one of those key ways you get buy-in where you put it out and say, hey, you have 30, 40 days to um, write a submission of what you think and how this can be changed because we all have blind spots. And the key is, is if you can get somebody to cover that blind spot that you have, or you're like, Hey, I didn't think about that. Um, or you can put it in, it really covers you. It makes for a better policy. Yeah, we have, uh, we call it notice and opportunity where, uh, being in a combination department and for people that don't know what that is, that's the combination. We have volunteers as well as career people operating in the same, uh, in the same uh, department, and that's that's pretty uh, prevalent in the in the Mid Atlantic region. But uh, what we do is is we have a notice and opportunity. So when a policy is written, it goes out to the union, and they have a certain amount of time that they can look at it, review it, make sure of it, that that they like it. They can uh, submit some uh, changes, change language, and things like that. And then from there, it goes notice and opportunity to the uh, the volunteers as well. We have a division of volunteer services, and they go out and they actually have. Uh, are capable of, of making comments and, and uh, uh, making changes and things like that to it as well. And it seems to me, you know, and I've been doing it for 32 years in the same department, it seems that it, it works fairly well. And, and what that does is because everybody had the opportunity to, um, to comment on it, you get buy-in. And at that point, we're all you know, kind of working off the same sheet of music when we're running fires and, and uh, medical calls or rescue calls. So even if we're doing something like a um, – 
a USAR type call or anything. We're all on the same page. We're calling things the same way. We're, we're operating off the same policy. So that uh, the notice and opportunity, I think, is good. That, that allows the union to have that voice to make sure that their members are being uh, thought of uh, in the process, and it's not just coming down from the, the ivory tower or the headquarters or whatever. So that's another way that, that we get buy-in. Is uh, Now, do you guys have notice and opportunity where you are, or does it just kind of go from the chief to its law? <laughs> The chief operations is doing a good job. He's It's not as formal, but now they're starting to put out policies and saying to all the chief officers, you know, here, identify anything you want changed, write the old language, write the new language, and go ahead with that. I also think that it's a great thing that the notice and opportunity actually helps with training because when somebody's just reading something to read it as the new policy, yeah, they're reading it. But when you tell them, I want you to read it, and if there's something that you think should be changed and you have an opportunity to be heard, now the person's doing a little bit more critical reading. They're really looking at it when they read it and say, how does this affect us practically when we go on an alarm or in the station, depending on what the policy is. So I think there's a lot of great things with notice and opportunity. The other thing that it helps, and we don't have it, the department can put out a policy and then we usually beat them up and and then file a grievance and then argue about it. And then that sometimes takes months to get resolved, which then a lot of times results in back pay and other unnecessary financial damage to the city. By having the city or town or county put it out first, you prevent future grievances and you prevent where an arbitrator or third party or a judge could say, hey, you did it wrong and this is the financial impact of you doing it wrong. So it makes sense for the taxpayers as well to have the opportunity to cut back on all that process and kind of put the process before the formal process to avoid situations instead of just automatically getting into them. So I think the way that you guys do it is a much better way. Yeah, and I've noticed that uh, there's not a lot of grievances that come out of the policies that are written, you know, having the union being able to, you know, kind of have a seat at the table and uh, tweak things so that it's it works all the way around, as well as the volunteers. It keeps that animosity down to a minimum uh, when we're running calls together. Um, shifting gears a little bit, and we're talking about, you know, instituting change and things like that. What are some of the some, – let's talk a little bit about some of the barriers that you're going to bump up against, and then how can you overcome those barriers? Um, you know, some of the things that I see is is the uh, well, why do we want to change it? We've always done it that way, or you know, I've got 35 years on the job; it always worked. What? How do we overcome those barriers as leaders of a department to to get to to move forward with the change with change that you know is beneficial to the department? Well, one thing that's important for leaders to realize is especially if their policy or their years getting attacked is they can't take it personal. It's part of the process. It's firefighters while they do an amazing job, do have a lot of downtime. So we're always going to be throwing rocks. It's just part of our culture. We're all type a personalities. So I think a lot of the problems where some of the barriers actually come from the chief officers themselves is because they they allow their ego to get wrapped around the decision and they kind of take ownership of that change. Like, oh, oh, if they're attacking my policy, they're attacking me. And I think too many leaders today have too much of a thin skin right off the bat that if somebody's attacking the concept, 
or they're attacking my policy, they're attacking me as an individual. And I think that that's, that's a shame. So for leaders out there, you bring in, let's put it this way. Who out there is it the hardest for us to negotiate with in our lives? And some people will say car salesmen and stuff like that. But really, when you think about it, most people will come and reduce that down to their kids. The reason we have a hard time negotiating against our kids is because we care too much. We're too emotionally invested. It's why whenever you have a legal case, everybody says if you represent yourself in a legal case, you have a fool for a lawyer. It's because you're too emotionally involved. So I think leaders have to kind of move their ego a little bit to the side when it comes to decisions. And they kind of got to take that global view. They can't take that, that any challenge to their policy is a challenge or slight to them. Because once that occurs, the entire process breaks down. And I see that throughout the whole entire country. Somebody comes up with an idea, and as soon as somebody throws a rock at that idea, they take it personal. And if you're going to be in a position of leader leadership, you got to be able to put the ego aside, and you have to be consistent in your decision-making. I think it's funny that, uh, you know, and I agree with you and, and I've seen it a lot and I've been guilty of it as well. And it took a long time to learn that, you know, you gotta, you gotta put your feelings aside. You gotta put your personal feelings aside. You gotta let your, keep your ego in check. And we'll talk about ego in a second, but it's funny because the one thing that you always hear these big tough firemen always say, I could come in here, leave your feelings at the door before you come into this firehouse because we don't have no feelings and, and, uh, you know, we're, we're men and we're tough and all that. And then the moment you, you start questioning them on, on the things they do or why do you do the things they do, they automatically get defensive and they start letting their feelings show. And I, I kind of find that <laughs> funny. Um, and uh, I've been guilty of it as well. But uh, it took a long time. It's not something that you can learn how to do to be able to keep your ego in, at, in, at bay because you know what you've got – this idea that you have that you're putting out there that you think it's a great idea, the moment somebody questions you, you you immediately, like you said, you get defensive and, and you can't get defensive because now you've shut that two-way communication down. You have no desire to listen to what that person who just questioned you has to say. So now you have no communication and your idea goes nowhere. Um, the biggest thing as people that are becoming lieutenants and captains and eventually want to be in an upper management in the, in the chief role is you got to learn how to listen to people. You got to be able to take criticism. You have to be able to, to have some critical thinking skills as well as some creative thinking skills. And you also have to understand that you are not the smartest person in the room. And I say that all the time, just because you have cross bugles, two, three, four, five cross bugles does not make you the smartest person in the room. That's where we start getting into humility and and uh, the moment that you start thinking you're the smartest person in the room, you will be humbled so quickly and you're going to lose that respect. But let's talk a little bit about ego because that's kind of one of my, my things that I like to talk about is people's like, oh, I don't have a big ego. You know, I can take anything and, and, and this and that. And, and you find these guys that love to dish out criticism and, and digs and, and mess with people. They're really good at that. But the moment somebody starts to actually push back on them, there's a huge breakdown and, and their whole facade just kind of crumbles. So let's talk a little bit about ego. Give me some, some personal experiences that you had and how you had to learn to come, overcome your ego and to become a good listener as well as a good talker. 
Well, this is something that, that took me a long time to learn. Well, there's, there's two lessons I'll give you here. One, your friends come and go throughout your life. Your enemies accumulate. So that's just something to always keep in the back of your mind. So be careful of accumulating enemies. And sometimes your enemies speak volumes to your character. So sometimes it's okay to have enemies because if you're going to try to do anything in life, you're going to have people attacking you. That's kind of natural. On the ego side and listening side, it kind of goes twofold, is that because I think of our personalities of being type A, and we always want to kind of win the argument. And a lot of times we want to win an argument that doesn't matter. So, or that you have no control over. So I'll give you an example. So I'm a union president. So yes, you got to listen. And sometimes you get buy-in that's really good and constructive. And other times you just get people complaining that it's just absolutely ridiculousness. And I used to battle anybody who would come up with, even if the idea was ridiculous, I would feel that I would have to kind of beat them down and, you know, well, no, these are the reasons why. And I kept dealing with a couple, you know, every organization has a couple people that are just ridiculous. It's just, you know, not everybody has good input. It's just a, a reality of life. It's a small minority, but they tend to be the loudest voices. So I used to try to battle and win the argument, but with them, you weren't going to win the argument. The facts didn't matter. So it led to a lot of frustration because I always wanted to engage them. And then one night I was reading a book and I believe it was a biography of George Washington. And there was a piece of advice there that was unbelievable. It said, when the stakes essentially aren't high and you disagree with somebody, just listen. And I said, it can't be that simple. So the next time I got a call where I would normally engage in debate, and the debate wasn't going to change the outcome of anything. It was just the sake of debate. I just listened. And by the end, by the next election, some of the people that were constant stone to my shoes voted for me. And I did nothing different. I kept, I'm always very consistent in my decision-making. And yet just by listening to people, people want to be heard. So that's my advice. If, if, if the argument doesn't have to be one, if it's nothing, that's a life safety issue. If it's nothing that's going to have a major impact, check your ego. You don't have to be right all the time. You don't have to argue through the points, even if the facts are on your side. Sometimes people just want to be heard. So take George Washington's advice, not mine. If you disagree with something and it's not critical, just stop and listen. Let them be heard out. Don't interrupt them while they're talking. That's the worst thing you can do because they just it's like feeding logs to a fire. Just just stop, listen, and just hear what they're saying. And sometimes they'll have a great point. And then maybe you can see that point. But don't get into the back and forth because it doesn't accomplish anything. And uh, here's where that you can take that particular advice to the next level is with your spouse or your significant other. Um, what I have learned, and it's taken a long time, and my wife is a saint, no doubt, um, the fact that I had to learn to listen to what she's telling me. A lot of times she'll come home from work and she just wants to tell me stuff. She doesn't want me to solve the problem. She just wants me to hear what she has to say. She's not looking for any feedback, but there are times... As firefighters, as that type A personality, our job is to fix stuff. 
And the moment they start complaining about something, then you start throwing these suggestions out there to fix stuff. And at the end of the day, they didn't get heard. That's all they wanted to do was get heard. So that's some sage advice that you're giving is, is listen to the people, especially if the stakes aren't high, like you said, with the, with the argument. Don't argue just to argue. Let the person talk. And then when it's all said and done, say, okay, cool. You got some good points there and, and move on. Um, and it's, it's, Dave, let me tell you, it's hard to do. For, for, for firefighters, for I'm sure people in the military, for people that just solve problems, like literally there's a problem, we have to solve it. It is extremely hard just to listen and not get in the fray if it's not worth getting into the fray about. There's a, um, it's hard to do. Right. There's a video out there of, it, of the, the, the dozens and dozens of people that are listening to this podcast. Um, there's a video out there I suggest you go out and find. It's called It's Not About the Nail. <clears throat> and my wife showed it to me, and it was basically, in a nutshell, the woman is complaining about these severe headaches, and she's got these back pains, and, and she just can't concentrate, and, and there's a huge, huge framing nail sticking out of the, her forehead, and her husband keeps saying, you have a nail in your head. No, you're not listening to me. I've got these headaches. So at the end of the conversation, it's all about, hey, I know there's a nail in my head. I just want to tell you how I'm feeling, and I just want you to listen. And uh, it's a it's a really good video. So I would suggest anybody out there that if you want to kind of peer into the mind of your spouse or what it's like to just listen to somebody, uh, take a listen to that video. Um, it took me a long time to to recognize that is is that a lot of times, uh, especially with the public, when the public calls because they want to complain about everything. It took you guys twenty five minutes to get to my to my house when I called nine one one. And sir, you're you're literally right next door to the firehouse. It took you twenty five minutes. A lot of times if you got them on the phone, you just let them talk and you agree with them and maybe even throw – like I found if I throw a little something out there, hold on for a second. I'm writing this down. Whether I'm writing it down or not, it doesn't matter. At the end of the conversation, they're satisfied that they got to get whatever they had to get off their chest. They think that you're going to go and, and maybe discipline some people or whatever. But at the end of the day, they just wanted to be heard and the conversation's over and you never hear anything else out of it again. You can use that logic for almost anything in life. Um, especially when it comes to, to negotiations. I know, Frank, as the president of the union, you have to go up with the uh, city officials and you negotiate contracts. And uh, there's, I'm sure, a lot of back and forth that happens there. Um, but how long did it take you to realize, let me hear what they have to say, and then let me talk and see if they listen to what I have to say? Is it? Do you have good back and forth when you're doing negotiations now? I just achieved the best fire contract with a great team in Connecticut. Not like it's not subjective. It's literally, you can just do the numbers. So you gotta listen and you can't just be waiting to talk. So, but I learned that through the years is coming up. So a lot of times when you're arguing with somebody, you're not listening to them. You're just waiting for your turn to jump in. So not only for negotiations, but I also do it for union meetings and everything else is if somebody's talking, I let them go because if they're talking, they're giving me information. Even if I don't like what they're saying, they're giving me information. And the more somebody talks, the more information they give. And the more information they give, what I'm doing is I'm really listening when they're talking because I'm looking for the one thing or the two things that they say that I can pounce on. So I'm not waiting to jump in. I'm not interrupting them when they're talking, which is, you know, 
they make a point and you feel like, hey, I can jump in and destroy them. Don't. Wait. Patience. Take a mental note of, okay, they said this. They said this. And that's how you box people in to arguments. And then, because you always got to narrow down to what's the problem. Even if you're writing a policy, what's the actual problem before we go fix everything? Is it the symptom or is it the problem? So if you're listening and you're kind of taking those notes, even if they're mental notes, the more somebody's talking, the more information they're giving. And either it gives you the opportunity to attack effectively or it gives you the opportunity to find agreement where you might not have had agreement before. So let them give as much information as possible. It works both ways. I'll give you a perfect example. Yesterday at the White House press briefing, the press secretary was brilliant. She had proper planning. She was prepared for the questions. And anybody go on Twitter and look at yesterday's briefing. She knew that she was going to be asked that question eventually. She had a note page for it. And she let the reporter talk. She didn't jump in. She didn't try to get down the person's throat. She let the reporter give out all the information and then she pounced. So always listen because when you're listening, you're getting information and you're also getting opportunities. You know, the best part about that news clip is I, when I watched it is what did that reporter say as she was walking away? Did you hear what he said? Uh, no, I don't think I could hear it. But th- what I loved is that she didn't engage when she made her point. She literally just walked off and said, I'll talk to you next week or something like that. But I don't know what you said. Yeah, what the reporter said that asked the question is she's walking away. He goes, you seem very prepared for that question or, or something of that nature. I was like, you seem prepared like you knew we were going to ask that question. It was hilarious. So, I mean, he literally – he played right into her hands. I thought it was brilliant. And uh, it was more or less – if she had had the microphone in her hand, it would have been one of those, I'm out, bitches. It would have dropped the microphone and walked out. It was that kind of moment. So I thought that was brilliant on her part. She listened to everything but, he said. Again, Go ahead. But how did she get there? It wasn't because she flipped through her notes. You could tell that wasn't just a knee-jerk reaction on her defending herself. She listened beforehand to what reporters were saying and pundits on TV, and she knew that, okay, this is going to be one of the things that I'm attacked on, so I'm going to be prepared for it. And so she probably had a tab in her notebook because she turned the page, and then she just went boom, 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 boom. So – that's the key. Anytime you're in a position of leadership, you have to be prepared and you have to be consistent. People want consistency. Some people want change. Some people don't want change. Everybody wants consistency. If you're consistent as a leader with a policy or in your decision maker in decision making, you will find that people who even disagree with you will say at least they're consistent. They know what is expected because people can succeed when they know what the expectations are. So I think that that's something that I was a student living in Montgomery County, Maryland, where Dave works. And one of the best things about being a student living that nobody talks about is I got to see most times when we evaluate leaders, you evaluate leaders linear throughout your career. So you have one boss, you see how they are, then you go to the next boss, you go to the next boss and your experience changes as you go through your career. But as a student living, we were in a paid firehouse in a volunteer combination system. And we got to see in real time in the same week, five different bosses. So five different lieutenants from four different shifts. Cause there was a day shift and then the four other shifts. And 
you got to see how they interacted with people, what worked, what didn't work. And the officers that were consistent, even if it was something that was absurd, if they were consistent, you know, then everybody knew how to, how to act and what that person expected, even if they disagreed with them. So being consistent also helps you to defend your positions if you're ever attacked on something else. So, and I think that's where you got to check your ego because at some point in your career, you are going to have to make decisions that are against your own self-interest. And I've had to do that several times throughout my career to maintain consistency. And that's where you really got to put that ego to side to say, hey, to be consistent, I have to make sure, you know, I said this for this, this is the same circumstance. I have to lead in the same way. Yeah, I had, uh, when I went around and talked to um, a bunch of shifts, uh, my old shift that I was on, I worked, I was the relief battalion chief. So I worked on Tuesday and Friday and I rotated through all three shifts. We have A, B, and C shift. We work 24, 48 schedule. So I would get to see all the different captains. I work with three different duty chiefs. Um, so I would got to see the different personalities. But one of the things, when I went around and talked to all the captains, and I ended up, I, I calculated to about 7 to 9% of our organization, I got to sit down with each individual shift and ask them about leadership and, and what do they think makes a good leader? What are some good attributes of a leader? And consistency was con- was const- was the constant. Every single time, it was consistency. They wanted to make sure that uh, that the boss was consistent. Every single shift that I talked to, every officer, every firefighter, consistency was like within the top five. Um, fair was always up there as well. Um, humble, um, capable of listening. But all those things kept coming back at the same thing, and it was a it was a really good uh, talk. But the, but being consistent, like you said, I have friends in the fire service, obviously. And I would discipline a friend the same way that I would discipline somebody who's not my friend. Um, and that is a testament to you being consistent, uh, dealing with the situation the same way. Do you treat everybody the same way, every person the same way? No, not at all. But when it comes to doling out punishment, it's got to be consistent or disciplined. Or when it comes to um, rewards or, or whatever have you, it has to be consistent. So I, I agree. That's key. Now, we talked about ego. It's funny because uh, as we're talking, I'm getting uh, news streams that are coming over my phone. I'm sure everybody by now is familiar with the uh, the uh, Texas salon owner that was uh, uh, put in jail yesterday by the judge. Um, I think that was a fantastic display of ego out of control. What is your take on that, Frank? Not trying to get too political, but just in the sense of ego, what was your take on that? Freedom should always be before force or coercion. So here you have the government using force over freedom. You can't, I mean, I could talk three hours about this, but you you can't suspend the Bill of Rights because of a pandemic. There has to be, the Bill of Rights has to be there and laws have to be carried out through the legislature, not through government, I got a hammer, I'm the governor, and this is the way things are going to be, or I'm the judge. Again, sometimes as a leader and as a judge, I'll quote uh, Anthony Scalia said, you know, if you're a good judge and you agree with every decision you've had to make from the bench, you're probably not a good judge because you have to realize that because we don't want to treat everybody the same, but we want to treat everybody by the same standard is that you you have to be consistent 
And you can't just say, well, because there's a pandemic now, we're going to use force over freedom. I think it's a overstep by the courts. I think he'll be overturned when it goes to appeal. And I think the governor of Texas is doing a great job because I believe he's working to to get this thing uh, resolved in some manner. But you can't be put in. Does it make any sense? Everybody asks this question. We have governments letting out sex offenders. It's a fact. And other criminals, we had a sex offender in New Haven let out of jail. So I, I could speak from personal thing, just from reading the local paper. But yet we're putting other people in jail for trying to do the right thing with social distancing. Not everybody has a check coming to them every single week, like government employees that we're so fortunate to be. You know, they need money to put food on the table. So if they're doing it responsibly, as it seems that she was, I think the, the government's using force and coercion, and I think they're overstepping the bounds, and I think they're violating her constitutional rights. And I agree. What, what I found interesting was the fact that the judge said uh, he wanted her to apologize, and it sounded to me, he didn't say it, but it sounded to me that if she would have apologized or whatever, he would have probably gone lenient, which lets you know that that judge had the, the uh, capability of throwing it out. He has that capability. He chose not to. Um, so what ultimately happened was because she refused to apologize, he put her in jail. Now, I just got a, a thing over my uh, news feed that the Texas Supreme Court ordered the, her to be released immediately, which I think is fantastic. But uh, that just goes to show an ego running out of control that I'm the judge and I told you to do this. So if you apologize on bended knee, I'll let you kiss the ring and move on. And uh, she didn't apologize because she wasn't sorry for what she did. She had to do what she had to do to put food on her table to feed her kids. She had to do what she had to do so her employees could put food on the table to feed their kids. So she wasn't going to apologize. And uh, I think that uh, the news media, some of the news media is correct, that when she finally gets out, she's going to be a folk hero, and uh, she'll make her tur- her circuit uh, on all the uh, the news uh, uh, outlets that are out there. And I'm sure her business will be do tenfold, which she deserves. But just a, a perfect example of just ego out of control. Be- just because you wear a black robe doesn't mean you're God, and you are capable of making a mistake, and you're capable of showing leniency, and you're, you're most certainly capable of being consistent. And I don't think that that judge would do that to every single person that came into his courtroom. Now, I could be wrong, but I think that uh, in this case, I think that the government got it wrong, and that uh, they, uh, they, I think they went a little too far. But in the end, the process worked because the Supreme Court overturned them, as you just said today. So that's great news, and that's why living in a republic is a tremendous thing, and that's why we need actual judges and not politicians in robes. So I cannot agree more. Just going back to you talked about traits, it's whether you're consistent, competent, and calm. Those Those are the three that always tends to stick out when it comes to being a boss. And I'll add in the humility part because I think it's important. And, and I, I share this story with, with everybody when I teach is I was searching for uh, a missing kid in a house on a fire. And at the end of the fire, I was the officer on the engine. You know, I thought we searched the whole entire place and we ended up missing, not a kid, but it, was the same. It felt the same to me. I ended up missing a dog that was literally between the bed and the window. And it was, it was like less than 12 inches of space. And when we 
were pushing into the room. The fire was enveloping the front of the building. So the battalion chief requested us to get to the window and just kind of play the stream at the eaves. So when we did that, there was a bookcase in front of the window. And I ran my head ac- hand across the bed, made sure nobody was in the bed. And then I put the bookcase, moved the bookcase, zero visibility, high heat, moved the bookcase on top of the bed. And the bookcase slid off and it covered that spot. And I missed it on the search. And this was my first night as a lieutenant, as a new lieutenant with a brand new shift, uh, good fire. And now here, I just messed up. So afterwards, as soon as we walked outside, the chief said, did you guys find the dog? I said, no, we didn't find the dog. He goes, he goes, the dog's in there. It's got to be somewhere. And my heart just sank. So we went up, we located the dog. And when I came out, I just, you know, we did our tailboard critique, your after action review. And yeah, did it suck? Absolutely. But I owned it. I said, listen, hey, I missed the dog. This was the mistake I made. I should have removed the bookcase to where I already previously been stable on the ground behind me instead of throwing it on the bed and causing this problem. I made a mistake. And what I thought was originally going to hurt my credibility ended up helping my credibility on that shift because it was a great firefighting shift. A lot of senior members, they realized they're like, hey, this guy is squared away. He's, I thought it was going to hurt me and it ended up really helping out my career because people realized that even though I was teaching and writing for fire engineering, that I was, I was real and I wasn't above the team. I was part of the team and I always strive to be excellent. And But sometimes striving to be competent and excellent, you got to look hard at yourself and when you make a mistake you got to own it and that comes back to consistency so from that day forward anytime i've ever led a critique or an after action review i start at what i did wrong or what i would have done differently knowing what i know now after the call and it's always helped my credibility it's never hurt it and when i really mess up i usually write an article about it and share it with the world yeah i uh i agree i i uh I actually are doing my uh, my leadership snippets for uh, for the uh, the um, my side alpha leadership um, media pages, and one of the things that I'll be releasing here soon. We talk about tailboard talks and hot or hot washes or whatever you want to call it, um, and I talk about humility and and the fact is that you have to point out what your shortcomings were and not only point them out but also let the crews know or at least the the uh, unit officers know. This is what I did wrong. This is what I'm going to do in the future to make sure that I don't do this again. Um, so it's always good to criticize yourself, especially if you did make mistakes, um, and then let people know that, hey, I'm just as human as everybody else is. I make mistakes, and when I make mistakes, like you said, you own them, um, and then not only own them, you talk about how you're going to overcome it so you don't make that mistake again. And I think that gets you credibility with your crew. I think that it definitely uh, – uh, boosts you up in, in the leadership role of being an actual leadership and not just a boss. Um, I think that um, people want to understand that, hey, you know, the chief makes mistakes. I made a mistake. I'm pretty down on myself. The chief makes mistakes. Uh, you know, he, he owned it and he, he talked about how he's going to make sure that it doesn't happen again. And that's what I'm going to do. Now, when you're talking about the mistakes you make and, and how you're going to overcome them, if somebody else has made a mistake, you need to allow them to own that and then and let them say how they're going to overcome that as well 
and not jump down their throats because they made a mistake. And, and one of the things that I've always said is you praise in public and you criticize in private. Um, if you need to make a criticism against one of your officers, you make sure that it's done not in earshot of everybody else and you do it in a, um, a manner that that you are talking to them as opposed to scolding them and allow them to explain what they did and that they did make a mistake, that they do own it and how they're going to overcome that. I think in, at the end of the day, it's all about building relationships and it's also about, like we talked about, it's about listening, putting your ego in check and being humble and being consistent. Very well said. I, I, can't, uh, I can't agree more, especially when it comes to the line. Now, no, if you're if you're a union president or you're the chief or, you know, there are times where you are going to, you're going to condone people in public as long as it's lawful to do so. I mean, I have a reputation of taking political leaders and taking chiefs that um, violate my members' rights uh, and putting them in the paper in a very public way and exposing their hypocrisy and exposing them, especially if they, if I catch them lying. So there is a time where you're going to not, it depends what type of leadership position you're in, but yes, definitely on the fire ground and stuff, you want to praise in public and criticize in private as long as, you know, within good measure. But sometimes in leadership roles too, um, you have to uh, utilize the press in order to get the change that you're looking for. So when it comes to any kind of change out there, it's always going to be about persistence. And if you're a firefighter out there, or you're in some other industry, you know, persistence pays off if you do it in a respectful and reasonable way. Um, you can really make a difference. And, and you got to realize, um, I think it was Zoll Miller who, who said it, um, you know, you can eat a half loaf of bread. You don't have to win every battle uh, 100%, especially if you're trying to make changes in the line or, or through your organization. You know, you, you can eat a half loaf of bread. If you're persistent, you know, you'll get there. But you don't have to win every single battle as a huge victory. You just kind of need to move the ball forward, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And, and again, you know, when we talked about um, <clears throat> with that communication of, of listening uh, to what people have to say and uh, and being able to absorb that information and then being able to, like you said, if it's not critical to the argument – Allow them to, to say what they have to say, and then you can move on. I know uh, I listened to um, to uh, Jocko Willink's podcast, and he had said something a long time ago that kind of stuck with me. Is that you know if you're sitting at a table with a bunch of people and you're the boss, or even if you're not the boss, you're just sitting at a table. Let everybody else at that table talk and say their ideas. And if you're the last one, what does that make you? Well, that makes you the smartest person at the table because now you know everything as well as what you're getting ready to say. And not trying to say that in a, in, a, in a conceited manner, but more of that you've taken the opportunity to listen to what everybody else at that table had to say, digest what they've said, and then insert some of your things as well. So when you're in that uh, role where you're, you're brainstorming ideas or you are in a, uh, in a room if you're, if you're negotiating something or whatever, listen to what everybody else has to say. And then once you have all that information, you're the man that knows it all now because you've heard what everybody else has to say. And now you can go ahead and formulate your argument, um, in a, in a constructive manner. Would you buy into that, Frank? I buy into it a lot. I, in my class at FDIC, I always teach about when is the actual meeting are you attending the meeting or are you attending the lecture? Because 
you're 100% right. If you're the boss and you're talking the whole entire time in your meeting, it's not really a meeting. It's it's really a lecture, and you're pretty much saying what your positions already are and then getting some input on things that you're asking about. So if you go to those types of meetings, you need to ask yourself, well, when's the actual meeting happening? What, when are the decisions actually being made? Because decisions usually aren't made at meetings. They're made in informal conversations made on day-to-day operations. So if you don't have exposure at all to the leader, you need to try to work on that that uh, networking skill to try to get yourself so that you're actually part of the, the non-formal meeting where they're calling you up and asking you, hey, what about this? And if you're, say, a deputy chief or, or a chief that's meeting with other chiefs, uh, Dave, I think you're 100% right. The best thing to do is before you start your agenda, because every meeting should have an agenda, put number one, you know, what's going on in the battalion or or what, what needs to be changed as some kind of open-ended question to get your chiefs talking. And I think that that's a, a great way to start off a meeting where you're just not lecturing your subordinates at all times. Um, just one thing I wanted to mention on the, you know, if you make a mistake getting it out. The first rule of crisis management, and Dave Statter um, actually did a whole segment in our command series. And what he says the first rule of uh, crisis management is, is very easy to remember. It's get it out, get it right, and get it behind you. Get it out first. So, you know, anytime something happens, if you admit it, it kind of takes away it kind of takes away the other side's argument. If you say, yes, I did that. This is what I would do differently than to just try to bury it because in today you can't bury anything. And that's a shame because that is a lesson that every single politician, I don't care if you're on the left or the right can use. Um, if you did something wrong, get it out. You know, if you get out in front of it, like you just said, right away, you admit, yep, I did that. I was wrong. I won't do it again. This is what I'm doing to make sure that it never happens again. You've taken the wind out of the sails of anybody that wants to argue with it. And if they continue to argue with it, it's like, dude, done. I said it. I did it. You're beating this dead horse. I was wrong. What more can I say? You know, so I think that that's uh, uh, excellent advice, especially when in the fire service where your integrity means everything. If you did something wrong... Admit it right away. Get out in front of it. The worst thing you can do is lie because you will eventually get caught, and it's ten times worse. And the cover-up is always worse than the act, and it always comes out in the end. You're going to get caught. It's just a matter of when. So it's it's always better to get it out and just take your licks and move on to the next day and don't create a new cycle that keeps going on for six months when you can get it done with in a couple days. Agreed, hundred percent. Um, well, we're we're winding down at that, uh, at that, like like we say, the witching hour of of the uh, conversation. Um, you want to take us out, Frank, with some last words, some 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 decent advice you want to impart on the people that are listening. When we talk about leader leadership, when we talk about listening to people, keeping your ego in check. Uh, anything that you want to throw out there for uh, lessons learned for people that they can uh, listen to and take forward as as they move into their careers. Um, I just want to thank you for having me on the podcast today. It was an honor to be on. I really appreciate it. And, you know, if somebody's listening to this podcast, they're already moving forward, not because you're listening to me, but just because you're getting new ideas and you're trying to cover your blind spots. One of the 
problems that I see in any industry. This goes for the fire service, the military, everywhere. In any leadership uh, role is that individuals take an issue a lot of times in leadership after they become the leader. And at that point, they've already failed. So one of the other advantages that of living in a firehouse in Montgomery County was that you you know, I talked about how you got to interact with that leader every day, different leaders, and see what works. The one thing that all subordinates will do in any industry is try to put you in the box and say, well, you didn't do that when you were a private, or you didn't do that when you got hired at this company. And being witnessing that as an 18-year-old kid, I knew at that point in time, I said, you know, I want to become an officer in the fire service, and I'm never going to have somebody say, you didn't do that when you were a private. So when I got hired in New Haven, I made sure that anytime I did any task, I would do an extra 10 to 15 minutes. I would never let the officer wash their dish. Even when I became the driver of the truck and I was in a more senior person position, I would still ensure that I didn't cook. So I would wash the dishes before dinner, set the table and I would wash dishes after. And when I did housework, I would always do a little extra because what you find is, is that we only do cool stuff. And I got the cool stuff thing from my neighbors at Green Beret. We only do cool stuff in the fire service or even in the military 10% of the time. The rest is the mundane day-to-day operations, but it's those mundane operations where you really start building your reputation. And if you're going to initiate change in the fire service or any service you got to be consistent but you also gotta if you're going to talk the talk you gotta have you gotta walk the walk and uh jay jonas who's i think the chief operations for new york city fire department i was at a memorial service and he walked into the kitchen um in a firehouse on the bronx expressway and when you're a probie in new york city and there's a stainless steel sink in your firehouse they take a sharpie and they put your name on the sink and so we walk in the kitchen and there's two names on the sink. And here's the guy, the chief of special operations for New York city or chief of operations for New York city, Jay Jonas. And he walks in, he goes, he goes, you know, one of the only things I regret in my career. And I go, what's that chief? He goes, he goes I wish I had a picture of when my name was on this sink because he worked in that firehouse. So for that many years, they've been doing that tradition. So you got to be willing to do the work and you got to be willing to do the mundane work. And, my neighbor Miles says it all the time. He's like, he's like, if somebody doesn't clean their gun and somebody doesn't do the day-to-day work, those people are generally the people that you can't count on in a firefight. And I see it in the fire service. The people that don't do the housework, the individuals that don't do a little bit of extra when they're doing something, those are people that are usually dogged at a fire. So, so if you're going to be in a position of leadership, realize that everybody is watching you and I will leave you with my, my last thing. Everybody says leadership is doing the right thing when nobody's looking. I reject that. I think it's easy if you're a moral individual to try to do the right thing when no one is looking. I think the problem that we have in leadership is people not doing the right thing when everybody's watching. And if you're going to be a leader in any industry, you are always being watched. And that takes some responsibility and you got to carry that on your shoulders and be the person that you want to be. Excellent uh, advice uh, for people to uh, to adhere to. Hello. Can you hear me? Dave, did I lose you? Nope. I, I can still hear you. Dave? 
Hello? Can you hear me, Frank? Yeah, now I can. <laughs> I watched it for a second. Yep. Um, well, I caught all of that. I just wanted to say that that's uh, excellent words to uh, live by. Um, and anybody that uh, can... can uh, adhere to what you had said is going to make for a better employee, whether it be in the private sector or it be in, in the military or fire or police service. So um, excellent uh, uh, words to live by. So Frank, I appreciate you coming on the, on the uh, podcast with me. And um, uh, I, it's been an honor to be able to talk to you and, and uh, for all the things that you've given me throughout my career of, of uh, setting me up to, to be an instructor on the national stage, I want to thank you for that as well. And um, for uh, so that that will conclude uh, this month's uh, side alpha leadership. Um, the show will be up he, in uh, in a couple of days, Frank. So again, thanks a lot for coming on. Dave, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be on your show. Everybody, be safe and have a great day.